Uh, Genesis chapter 14, we're going to continue and and put us here. We're still with the story of uh, Abraham, still his name at this point, Genesis 14, is Abram, hasn't been changed, so we'll see that coming up here shortly. We're going to continue that story. Remember, um, Genesis 1 through 11 is a unique part of Scripture. Uh, Genesis 1 through 11 is kind of... That, that, that story of the, the beginnings of things. And, and many people see Genesis 1, uh, 2, and 3 as the beginnings of things. Genesis 1 through 11 really is, a, is the beginning of things, if you will. And, and in Genesis 1 through 11, we saw the fall of mankind through sin and rebellion. We saw the promise of God that he will redeem in spite of man's sin and rebellion, that he will redeem them. We saw how wicked mankind can become very quickly in the flood and how God is going to take seriously sin and he will judge it. And he did judge it and he judged it harshly. Even though he judged it, he also will make a way of salvation for those who believe in him, who are faithful to him, and who, are, who trust in his promises like he did with Noah and his family. So when Noah and the family got off of the boat, we see how God through Noah again kind of reestablish that creation mandate, be fruitful and multiply. And that was reestablished. They were told to go out and they didn't go out. And so they stayed together and they kind of started to turn wicked again. They sought to do everything that was right in their own eyes. They sought to make a name great for themselves. And so this time God confused their languages and spread them out across the face of the earth. And here you have what I'll jokingly say the beginning of modern history. Because now you have the nations, now you have different languages, now you have different groups, and you have them spread out. So the promise that God made that he will, that he, through the curse of the serpent, Satan, the uh, Genesis, I mean, excuse me, Revelation 12 says, the promise that God made came, comes through the curse when he says that I'll put enmity between uh, you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, he will crush your head, you shall bruise his heel. This is the Genesis 3.15, the first promise of the gospel. He's saying to the great disturber of his peace, I am going to crush you at some point. And it'll be through one who'll be born of this woman. And so this promise then you start to see work its way out. At the end of Genesis 11, you're sitting there going, how is God going to keep this promise? These people continually are wicked. They continually do the wrong thing. How is he going to fix the mess that we have made as human beings? And then in Genesis 12, you get him calling Abram out of the Ur of the Chaldeans, and he gives him another promise. Genesis 12, 1 through 3, this promise is threefold. He says, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you a land and I'm going to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. So his promise is threefold. It's going to be land. It's going to make him a great nation and it's going to be blessing. All of these come. And by the way, I would say to you that this is how we would define God's kingdom throughout scripture. And you will put this together maybe and we'll continue to show you this hopefully throughout scripture. But I would define God's kingdom as Graham Goldsworthy has done it this way. God's kingdom as God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. God's kingdom is God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing, right? And so if you define kingdom that way, we'll start seeing how the promise made to Abram is going to be the outworking. uh, The kingdom is going to be working out from that promise throughout. Now, what I said to you 
last week was that that promise in Genesis 12, 1 through 3 will become the outline for the rest of the Old Testament, if you will. The first part is going to be, how is God going to make them a great nation? Remember, Abram and Sarah cannot have a child. They, they, God's going to make a great nation through him, and he's going to bless the nations through Abram. Yet Abram and Sarah are older, and they cannot have any children. They've been barren, so they don't have any. So God's going to use this story to show us how he's going to bring about a great nation. And really, all through Genesis, you see how he works this. After Genesis, you have 400 years between Genesis 50 and Exodus chapter 1. And in Exodus chapter 1, while they are in Goshen, in the land in Egypt, the people, it says, had become a great nation. So you see how God had grown them through those years, and they become a great nation. And then from Exodus, you see how God's going to take his great nation, just like he promised, and he's going to take them to the land that he promised. And so you'll see all of this through Joshua until finally, you, you know, you have Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Joshua. Here's how they get to the land. In Joshua, it says, and just as God has promised, the people entered the land and took it, right? So the land is given to them. And then starting in Judges throughout the rest of the history, you're going to see how God is going to bless his people and his blessing is going to come through a king. And so you have this idea just being built up through this. Well, coming back to this now in Genesis, the first part of the Abraham narrative in Genesis is Abraham getting accustomed to his land that God has provided for him. We saw what happened back here in Genesis chapter 12. As soon as God gave a promise that he would give him a land, a famine entered the land. Abram left the land and went to Egypt, and that didn't go too well. Y'all remember last week? It didn't go too well because he had left the land that God had shown him. It didn't go too well. Remember, in some sense, and we don't want to be silly or wrong with this, but in some sense, whenever God's people leave the land God has promised them in the Old Testament, good things don't happen, Right? I mean, look at, look at, at Ruth, and, and you had Naomi and Elimelech. Famine came in the land. They left. It didn't go well wherever they, when they went to Moab, right? And so you, you see these things because God's promise is tied to that place ultimately here. And so in our passage, Abram leaves. God has already made a promise, I'm going to make you a great nation. It's not like God's going to let Abram starve to death. He must believe and trust in those promises, right? And so when he leaves, it doesn't go well. He comes back. God, uh, again, reiterates his promise to Abram, how he is going to bless him. You stay here. You're going to be blessed. Abram settles in the land God's promised. But Abram has his nephew with him named Lot. And Lot, remember, he chooses a different place because the, the sheep herders and all those people can't get along with Abram's people and there's too, too many animals, not enough grass, need more water. So he finds a place he really likes and it looks really pretty and nice and he goes and settles right up against a city called Sodom. And even though the city was wicked, Lot settled there because it looked good and it fit for him. It was prosperous for him. So we talked about that, how Abram stayed there in the land, Lot settled in Sodom. Already at the end of chapter 13, you kind of get this sense that Lot didn't choose wisely. Now, has anybody in here ever heard of Sodom and Gomorrah? Okay, you all have. So you already know Lot doesn't choose wisely, but we're going to see God's grace in this 
again. Because in chapter 14, we're going to have this story about how Abram will rescue Lot. So Genesis, Genesis chapter 14, Abram is in his land in his place. And then in the midst of this, many people talk about the end days. You know, there'll be wars and rumors of wars. Since Genesis 11, right? Since the creation of the nations, there has been wars going on all the time. Different cultures, different peoples, different languages, misunderstandings, fighting over borders, fighting over land, fighting over everything. In Genesis 14, as far as ancient literature goes, we have the first record. If you look at other ancient Near Eastern sources and other things, we have the first record in Genesis 14 of the first war that has been verified even through archaeology. Even through archaeology. In fact, all of these cities that have been named have been found through archaeology in, in, in Israel. And so we have the first war that takes place in Genesis 14. I don't think the point, I think the point here for a couple things. First of all, we learn, you know, war is going to happen. People are sinful. We'll see this take place. We'll get to what the point is here in a minute, though. So he says in 14, in the days, I, I, I went ahead, I wanted to read this out loud for y'all just to demonstrate my incredible ability to say all these names. You know what I'm saying? Because this gets, this gets serious right here. I mean, we're going to get into some stuff. And so I, if I choose to stop at any moment, it's okay. So in the days, well, I can't read it. So um, you have all these people. You've got this king uh, of Shinar, Amphriel, Ariok, king of Elisar. See there? So all of these had been conquered by this one fella. And so ultimately, as this one king had conquered these cities, what had happened was he made these cities he had conquered pay tribute to him. And so there was 12 cities he had conquered. They had to pay tribute to him. So after 12 years, they get mad about it and they rise up in a battle. So it's five on four. They join up against each other and they're going to fight in a battle. In the midst of this, the king of Sodom is going to be destroyed and defeated and Sodom is going to be ransacked. And so if you look down, you'll see how in the valley of Siddam, down in verse 10, full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all the, their provisions and went their way. Verse 12, they also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Now what do we learn? Remember the last, the last chapter we found out that Lot didn't dwell in Sodom. He just went near Sodom, right? So Lot had settled near Sodom, and even though it was wicked. But what always happens, and I'm not going to spiritualize this too much, but what always happens when we try to get too close to wickedness? It sucks us in. And so the idea that Lot could stay outside Sodom and stay away from it and not get tangled up in the Sodom stuff, that idea is kind of thrown away here because what happens for Lot is he gets sucked into Sodom. Not only that, the fact that they captured Lot and all his possessions testified that Lot was probably an important figure in Sodom. They would have just destroyed or killed, but no, they captured Lot and took him on. So Lot had 
gone in and now he had dwelt in Sodom and now he had become a leader or a figure in Sodom, possibly. So he had been pulled into this. We already know. It's not me just making this stuff up, but we had already heard that the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. That's not just some slight thing. It wasn't like he just said, the men of Sodom, you know, they did some dirty stuff or they weren't the best dealers. It says they were wicked, great sinners, right? And so here we'd already learned this and Sodom had, I mean, a lot had joined in with them and now he's captured. And so ultimately we see the dilemma. War has taken place. Abram is minding his own business back in his land. He's not caught up in this. And then he hears, as it tells us next, one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew. Now, the reason why it mentions Abram the Hebrew here is because Abram is not caught up in any city that's going on. Abram is his own man. He's belonging to himself, ultimately, in his clan. He's the first Hebrew, if you will. This is what the, this is what the other nations referred to Abram and his, and his children as, right? He's the first one. So Abram is his own man. He's minding his own business. He's doing exactly what God had told him to do. He didn't get caught up in any city. He didn't get caught up. He was trusting the Lord, doing what God had told him to do. So Abram is there, and he tells Abram the Hebrew who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, the Amorite brother of Eschol and of Amir, Anir. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Now this statement's important for us. Lot is suffering now has been captured because of the war that has taken place and he was caught up in the wickedness of Sodom. He was caught up there. Lot has been captured. There are consequences for us, right? There's consequences for us when we're in the wrong place at the wrong time. Y'all's grandma ever told y'all that? Because mine did. You know what I mean? When you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, there's consequences to be had. And so here is Abram, and he has the opportunity. He has the opportunity to say, well, I told Lot not to go over there. You know what I'm saying? I told Lot not to get caught up with those people in Sodom. I told him not to be messing around with those people in Sodom. I'd already told him that. And so I'm going to let him learn his lesson, right? I'm going to let, let Lot feel this. Let's let him spend a couple days over there. That's what he could have done. But you know who else said something like that? Just to go ahead and let y'all know, I don't mean to be shocking. Cain did, right? Because whenever the Lord said, where is your brother Abel? What did Cain respond? Am I my brother's keeper? The statement here ultimately is, yes, you are. We bear responsibility for one another. We take care of one another. We look after one another. So Abram becomes the anti-Cain, if you will, and says, my nephew is in trouble. Even though I didn't get caught up, maybe I told him not to stay. Maybe I told him not to go. But my nephew is in trouble. My family is in trouble. I'm going after them, right? I love this kind of stuff. I'm going to pursue them. And so he goes after, gets his 318 men. Now he's, listen to who he's going after. He's going after a, tri, a, a, a five cities, five kings. He's going to go after five kings who just won a war. 
You know what I'm saying? They had just dominated some other kings, and so he's going to go after those kings. And so Abram is looking at some guys who were victorious, and they've got his nephew Lot, and he's saying, I'm going to go get them. I love it in the scriptures whenever we see people with the confidence of the Lord behind them looking at what seems like unsurmountable or insurmountable odds and going, I'm going to do it. You know what my favorite one is? I'll go ahead and tell you what my favorite one is because it's in Joshua, so it may be a while. (laughs) Caleb is my favorite one. You know, Caleb at 40 years old goes as one of the spies into the promised land and says, yes, they look like giants. Yes, the grapes are the size of my head. Yes, those people are going to be tough. Yes, their cities are fortified. Yes, it's going to be hard. But I tell you what, God told us that's our land. Let's go. Y'all remember that? And the ten other spies, Joshua not included, said, no, they're too big. We're not going. So they don't go. Some 45 years later, when Caleb was 85 years old and they entered into the promised land, him and Joshua were the only ones from that generation, right? They enter into the promised land. Do y'all remember what Caleb said at 85 years old? And now 85 years old in Joshua is a lot like 85 years old in Taylor's right now. Y'all know what I mean? And y'all know what Caleb said. Caleb said, I want the mountains and the giants. Give them both to me. At 85 years old, give me the mountains and give me the giants. Give me the toughest terrain and give me the biggest people because I'm going in to take it. God's already promised I've been waiting 45 years for this. I love that kind of stuff in Scripture. That's the kind of courage that the Scriptures call us to. Y'all see what I mean? That's the kind of courage that the Bible calls us to every single time. And that's the kind of courage that we see rewarded with victory time after time after time after time. Oh, yeah, Abram takes off. He's got 318 men. They split up. They attack at night. They get everybody confused. They win the battle, and it's over. Abram finds Lot, gets all his junk back, gets everything, go ahead and bring it all, gets all of his junk back, gets all of his people back, and he returns Lot back. He wins. He goes after these armies who just won, and he wins. In that, we recognize, in that, we recognize that Abram goes into this with a good plan. But there's no question in Scripture that Abram's victory is because God was with him. There's no question in Scripture that because God was with him, Abraham was courageous and bold. Y'all see what I mean? There's no qu- Now, Abraham was bold. Abraham was prepared. He came up with a plan. But there's no question that even in his plan, he knew his only way he would be victorious is if God was fighting for him. And so Abraham had a, was bold. He had a plan, but he went in the strength of the Lord. What I'm saying to you tonight is I don't care how old you are, from 8 to 80, it doesn't matter. When we have the Lord on our side, we really do have nothing to fear. When we have God with us, there's really nothing to be afraid of. And and, and understand what the scriptures say because Jesus puts it this way. If they can't even take your life, right, then what do you have to be afraid of? It's like Lottie Moon said. Y'all know Lottie. Everybody knows Lottie. We love Lottie. Like Lottie Moon said, I am immortal until the Lord calls me home. Y'all hear what she's saying? Can't nobody kill me until the Lord's ready to have me. 
And so with that, let me go in Lottie's life. Let me go to China as a single lady and spread the gospel for Jesus Christ. Let's be bold about it. Let's be prepared. Let's go. Let's do it. Abram looks at this and says, I am my brother's keeper and there's nothing going to stop me from going to get him because God is on my side. And remember what Cain said. Am I my brother's keeper? Almost act like he wasn't. Abram demonstrates that we are all going to need somebody to take care of us at some point. And I'm thankful, I hope you are too, that our brother, Jesus Christ, said, I'm my brother's keeper. Y'all see what I'm saying? He lays down his life for his brothers. And so he says, I am my brother's keeper. And they have sinned and they have gone astray, but I'm going to get them. And he came boldly with a plan and God won that victory for us. That's exactly what we see here already evidenced in Abram. Abram says, I'm trusting the Lord. Lot had done something stupid. I'm going to get him. Now, before I jump to the next thing, isn't it just like our numbskull kids that we keep saving that they go right back to Sodom? Y'all know what I'm talking about? Because you're going to get this Genesis 19 and you're going to see that Lot's right back in the thick of it. And the Lord's going to have to save him again, which only testifies to God's grace, even in our stupidity. Even in our stupidity, God continually pursues after his people. And Abram here demonstrates this, and he goes in, even when the odds are insurmountable, and he says, God will fight for me. And he does. He does. Abram wins the battle. He brought back, you see verse uh, 16 there. Seriously, I'm going to have to start wearing glasses. I'm, I kid y'all not. I don't know. Is, it, is, it, is this what happens when you get cold and your blood's not flowing you can't see? I don't even know how to, I wouldn't even know how to do that. You know what I'm saying? Like, I got rhythms with my hands and stuff when I preach. I do this, I do that, I'm everywhere. And to start doing this and doing this. But if I, if, I put, if I put reading glasses on, because I see all of y'all's faces so nice and pretty, some of you, but if I put, <laughs> if I put reading glasses on, i got to take them off to see you, you know what I'm saying? But there may be times that I want y'all blurry. I don't know. It's just, it's a lot, of, a lot of stuff happening right here in front of everybody. Verse 16, I got it. Then he brought back all the possessions... And also brought back his kinsmen, Lot, with his possessions and the women and the people. Abram brought them all back. He got all their stuff. He was victorious. He was bold. He was courageous. God fought for him. He went and got him back. After he returns from the defeat of Chedor Lamor, Lamer, whatever, and the kings, y'all laughing at me saying a word like that. Y'all don't know what y'all saying? The kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God, be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, 
Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eskol, and Mamre take their share. Let's start at the end here. When Abram wins and he runs off the armies, the armies that just defeated the king of Sodom and others, he, of course, like any victorious general, is going to be blessed by the king. He's going to be blessed by the king. So he's met here by two different kings. One of them, the king of Sodom. We know how Sodom is run. We know what Sodom was like. And I love this because the king of Sodom comes and says, hey, just give us the people. You can have all the stuff for your trouble. And Abram said, I wouldn't even take a strap on a sandal from you. You see how that's different than what Lot did? Y'all see what I'm saying? I wouldn't even take a strap and a sandal for you because there's never a time, king of Sodom, that I'm going to be indebted to you. It is God who provides for me. It's God who cares for me. It's God who's won this victory. And there is not going to be a moment I am indebted to you for anything. Never are you going to be looking at me and saying, I made Abram rich. No, sir. The Lord, Abram saying, is the one who makes me rich. There's a lot to be learned here for us, right? Opportunity for Abram to have a ton of possessions. If you remember, Lot had as much stuff as he did. Not only that, all the other that has been collected, especially if the case is that Lot had risen to a power in Sodom itself. In order to gain power in those days, the more land you had, the more stuff you had, the more position you had, right? And so Lot may have even expanded it. And so here is Abram uh, just won the lottery from Sodom by saying, you can have all of this stuff. And Abram turns down the goods of this world for what? I'm not owing you anything. And for us, what a great testimony that is. What a great testimony it is to say the goods of this world are not what we're longing for or what we're after. In fact, that's how Jesus puts it over and over again. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Our treasure is not where? Here. Moth and rust destroy this stuff. Our treasure is in heaven with an inheritance that is unfading and infallible for us, one that can never go away or never disappear. That's who we're trusting. Abram is testifying that I don't trust the goods of this world at all. In fact, in Hebrews 11, I love what it says about Abraham when it, by faith he looked for a city not made by hands, but one that was greater than any earthly city, right? He's looking for Christ and what his city and that one prepares. So I don't need this stuff here. I'm looking for something greater. And so Abram turns, turns it down in opposition to Lot. A good lesson for us is that we do not want to be dependent on the world's goods or owe this world anything. We want to be faithful to know that God cares for us, watches over us. And all the stuff we have, all the things we have collected... What's our response in all of that? Thank you, Lord, for your kindness to me. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and making sure I have all my needs. That's why it's no small thing. Please don't think it's trivial for us. And I want you to hear me because I'm not trying to make this trivial. Please don't think it's trivial that we say our blessing before we eat our food, right? Think of that. We're admitting at this moment that though we worked hard, 
We earn some money and we got our money and we're able to feed ourselves. We're admitting that we don't have anything, any provision in front of us on down to the basic water and food unless God has provided it for us. God is the one that gives us talents and abilities. God is the one that opens up those things for us. So everything we have is a gift from him. He opens his hand and satisfies the desires of every living creature. And so our desire here is not to say we don't want anything of the world. Our statement here is to say everything we have, we admit it is a gift from God. And so we owe it back to him. We owe it back to him. Abram does not want to be indebted to anything of this world. Neither must we. Neither must we. And then let's think of this other guy here that shows up, this other king. This other king's different. The one king was from Sodom, and we know Sodom was wicked. But this king is Melchizedek, king of Salem. Now, Melchizedek means, the word Melchizedek simply means king of righteousness. It's a a joint word. And so here, king of righteousness is his name. King of Salem. Many people believe, and I think rightfully so, this is the precursor to the city Jerusalem, if you will. Salem being the last one, which means peace. King of righteousness, king of peace. This one, as the scripture says, was the priest of God Most High. He had come as a priest of God Most High, and this one comes, and he blesses Abram. And when Abram hears his blessing, what does Abram do? He gives an offering. And he offers him 10% of everything he has. Abram gives him an offering testifying what? To this this king, he is legitimate. This one is legitimate. This is the one that I honor. This is the one that I will, will, will give my offering to. Not this king of Sodom who's worldly and wicked, but this one, the king of righteousness, the king of peace. This is the one I give my offering too. Now this Melchizedek is a classic figure in the storyline of scripture. In fact, he's called some people to to dive into who he is and where he is because he literally appears out of nowhere and then disappears, right? He's got, as the scripture says, no father and mother. In other words, there's no genealogy of his priesthood. He is an admitted priest and a recognized priest by Abram. In fact, the scripture says, even as Moses is writing this, this Moses gives us a little parenthetical statement here. Y'all see what he does? It's in parentheses in my Bible. Here, this Melchizedek, he was a priest of God most high, letting us know who this was. So this one, this one was recognized. So Melchizedek, no father or mother. In other words, we don't have a genealogy of his priesthood. And that's what we should expect, right? So the reason why that's important is because later when you have the Levites and the Levitical priesthood, in order to be a Levite and considered in the Levitical priesthood, you had to be in the genealogy. What made you a priest was you were a part of a genealogy. You had to testify to who your father and mother were. And so the Levitical priesthood, genealogy was everything. But here comes Melchizedek, and he's recognized as a priest, but he doesn't have a genealogy, and he just appears. Now, I believe... Obviously, I believe Melchizedek's a real person, a real king of a real city who shows up here to Abraham. Many have tried to say that this is a a different kind of figure, maybe some sort of proverbial figure that shows up. But no, I believe this is a real person that Abraham deals with really here and offers up a blessing to. He's coming and he's blessing him and Abraham responds with an offering. But I do believe Melchizedek carries a greater force throughout the narrative of Scripture. I believe Melchizedek, just as the author of Hebrews tells us, is a type of Christ. 
In other words, he's pointing us to the Messiah. He's pointing us to the Messiah. If, if you look with me to Hebrews chapter 7, Hebrews chapter 7, this is what the author of Hebrews is going to do. The author of Hebrews is making the point that Jesus is our great high priest. Okay? Y'all remember that? Jesus is our great high priest. He's the one that offers up sacrifice on our behalf, not in the temple made by hands, but the temple that is in heaven. And he pours his blood out on that temple, not the blood of bulls and goats, but his blood. And he's the faithful high priest. And the argument may be, but wait a minute. Don't you have to be in the Levitical line to be the high priest, right? Don't you have to be, if the, if the Jews hear this, the Hebrews hear this, don't you have to be one of the Levitical in the Levitical line in order to be the high priest, in the tribe of Levi to be a high priest, right? Well, the author of Hebrews says, no, he's a different high priest. He is in, in chapter 7, he is of the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. In other words, because we don't know when Melchizedek was born or when he died or who his family is, he's got a line out there that God has recognized that's outside of the Levitical line of priesthood, right? Jesus is from Judah. But, but here he's considered a priest, and so there's a line out there that's outside of that Levitical line. Now, who's from the line of Judah? Y'all know? What does the line of Judah carry? The kings, right? That's who the kings are. So how is this going to work? To get an understanding, the Old Testament and the Jewish nation had three offices. They had the king, the priest, and the prophet. Those are three offices, right? You have the prophet, priest, king. Those are the three offices in the Old Testament. What I want to go ahead and tip your hat to is that Jesus is the fulfillment of all three of those offices. Jesus is our prophet, priest, and king. The New Testament makes this clear. And so while we see this here, Jesus is the prophet, priest, and king. He is the word of God who comes to tell us God's word and explain it to us. He is the priest who's going to offer up sacrifice on our behalf. He is the king who will reign forever and ever. Jesus is the one who takes these three offices of the Old Testament and brings them all together. And so in this, then, what the author of Hebrews is making, we can see he's in the line of Judah. He is the king, the son of David, right? But we can also now need to make this argument that he's our high priest. And if he's going to be our high priest, all the high priests before had been in the line of the Levitical line. But now Jesus comes along and he says, there's a different line out there that's in the Old Testament that you need to be aware of. It's in the line of Melchizedek. And we didn't even know where Melchizedek came from or where he died. That line still continues. And so Psalm 110 says the same exact thing. In Psalm 110, it tells us here, it points this out. When he says, the Lord says to my Lord in Acts chapter 2, this is what Peter is going to um, use in Acts chapter 2 to demonstrate that Jesus is the Son of God and that he will be raised. He says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. 
The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Speaking of the kingly nature of this Messiah. Then he goes and says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110, verse 4. Here, the psalmist is even connecting the dots for us that the coming Messiah will be a king that will sit at the right hand and rule forever of God, and he also will be a priest, not in the order of the Levites, but in the order of Melchizedek. That's who he will be. But what's interesting about Melchizedek is this is the only other place in the Old Testament where you see a king and a priest in the same person. It's the only other place. Melchizedek is a king, and he offers up a sacrifice, right? He's a king, and he's acting as a priest who offers up a sacrifice on behalf of his people, and Abram gives him a tenth back, demonstrating this priestly office. So Melchizedek is the only place in the Old Testament where you see a king acting as a priest. Now, David enters in one time and doesn't get in trouble for it, but here you see the exact office of Melchizedek holding at the same time king and priest. That does not happen anywhere else. This is unique to Melchizedek in the Old Testament. And so ultimately, now what we're seeing here is the reason why Jesus is in the line of Melchizedek is because he too, like Melchizedek, will be a king and a priest himself. That's this line. Different from the Levites who would never be kings. But this line, Melchizedek, is the king priest. I love Zechariah. Zechariah comes along at some trouble. Not everything's going great in the life of Israel. The exile has taken place. They're talking about coming back. And so as Zechariah begins his prophecy, he has some night visions, as they're called. Y'all know what those are called? Dreams, right? And these dreams are pretty vivid. But it's dreams are pointing to what's coming. And in Zechariah chapter 3, if we can connect the dots from Genesis 14 to Hebrews chapter 7, right? Connecting those dots is Jesus. In Zechariah chapter 3, we see that one of the visions that come up is there's going to be this high priest. Because of Israel falling, Jerusalem falling, the kingship is going to have to be restored, and the high priest is going to have to be restored. So you get this guy. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I take away your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So then they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by him. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways, keep my charge, 
then you shall rule my house and have charge over my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. Y'all know who he's talking about, the branch? That's Isaiah. He's going to talk about the branches. Isaiah, this branch is going to be the one who's going to graft in the new growth after it has been destroyed. Y'all get what I'm saying? Maybe not, but we'll pick it up later. Um, for behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. I will remove the iniquity of the land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. What he's saying here is not only am I going to restore the line of the priest, I'm going to restore the line of the priest through Joshua. I'm going to clean him up who was, in, who was not clean. I'm going to dress him in pure vestments again. I'm going to restore the line of the priest. But in this symbolic way, not only, am I going to, not, only about, not only am I going to restore the line of the priest, I'm going to make the priest be the one who's going to clean all of my people up. There's coming a day, in a single day, when your iniquity will be forgiven. Isn't there coming, wasn't there a day in a single day when iniquity was forgiven? There's coming a day, and it's going to be through my priest, he says. And he even gives language here that my priest will reign because of this. He says, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house. So there's coming a day when the God is going to use his priest to not only, he's made him clean, he's not only going to use his priest to clean up himself, he's going to use his priest to clean up all of his people and make them righteous before his side. There's coming that day, and that priest will reign. So skip over to chapter 6 then of Zechariah. Verse 9, and the word of the Lord came to me, take from the exiles Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, have arrived from Babylon and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehoshaphat. Well, my, this is my eyesight right there. The high priest. And say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, the man whose name is the branch for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on its throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helam, Tobijah, and Jediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off shall come and help build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent him to you. And this shall come to pass if you are diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. So in, the in this earlier vision, he said it's going to be the priest who's going to restore my people, save them and redeem them, and he will rule because of it. And now in chapter 6, he's saying that priest is going to wear a crown. That priest is going to wear a crown. And that crown will be bimetal, silver and gold, representing the two offices that will be placed upon his head. And when he wears that crown, you will know victory is ours, right? Victory is ours. In so other words, we look at the text 
the office of king and priest are never to mix. They're never to come together in the Old Testament. You can't have them both. The Levites were the priests. Those from the tribe of Judah were the kings. But then the promise of the Lord says, there's coming a day when my priest king will reign. There's coming a day when my priest king will clean up his people. He will offer a sacrifice on their behalf. He will redeem them and do it. And because of that, he will reign. There's coming a day when the priest king will take over. And don't we want it that way? Where the king who is in charge of all the civil duties of the people, caring for their needs, caring for what they must have, making sure all of our goods are supplied, all of our grocery stores are full, making sure our heat and air works. Y'all know what I'm talking about. The king is responsible for his people and making sure they have all the things that are necessary for them to survive and all that they need. The king is responsible for all of that. And at the same time, it's the priest that is responsible that our sins are forgiven. And it's the priest that is responsible that we're in right standing before God. It's the priest that is in responsibility as responsible that we have everything we need spiritually. The king is responsible for everything we need physically, right? And see, we see that moment when those two come together and they're in the same person. Melchizedek becomes a picture of that. The priest king who was good and right and true, who points us to our hope, the priest king who will not only supply all of our needs and make sure our heating and air work, but he will also forgive us of our sins. Make sure our sins have been forgiven. They put that crown in the temple. And every time they passed it, they said, we're waiting on the one who can wear it. We're waiting on the one who can don that crown and wear it. Is it not surprising then that whenever Melchizedek met with Abraham, what did he offer up? Y'all remember? There under the tree, as he met with him, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Already a picture of how our future priest king will come to us, offering us bread and wine. But the bread and wine he offers is the body and blood that he gives. And so for us, we thank God for our priest king. We look at the world, Sodom, and say, we don't need your stuff. I wouldn't take a strap from your sandal. And we look to our king, our priest king, when he offers the bread and wine, and we freely eat, and we give back. We give back in love and appreciation to what he's blessed us with what he's blessed us with. I hope to goodness. That's a lot. We tie these things together in the scriptures. Remember, the best interpreter of scripture is what? Scripture. Keep reading your Bible. And as we look to God's word, we see that we're thankful for our priest king in the line of Melchizedek, Jesus Christ. We're thankful that he's provided the bread and the wine for us through his body and his blood. And we're thankful that the one who meets all of our needs, our king, is the one who has forgiven us of our sins, our priest. And in him we trust, for he's the one who wears the crown.
Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord. We thank you for what you have provided in him. So God, tonight, may we look at the offerings of the world and say we wouldn't take a strap from your sandals as we look to the offerings of Christ and we feast upon them. We rest in him. Trust him with all that we have. God, help us for these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.